Thanks for listening to the Toronto License Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Stuart Cox. Stuart is the founder and president of Antica Productions, a Toronto-based media company that produces podcasts, films, and television series. He was an executive producer at CBC's flagship news program, The National. He started a little show you may have heard of called Dragon's Den, and he worked with the late Gord Downey on his Secret Path project, along with the Downey Wenjack Fund. The winner of four Canadian Screen Awards, Stuart will have some great stories from his experiences working in Canada and around the world. Welcome, Stuart, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Oh, well, thank you, Andrew. Uh, pleasure to be here. I am at my home in Toronto, which is sort of in my bedroom office, which I've been in off and on for the last three years. Are you enjoying working at? Well, you know, it's funny. We had an office that, like a lot of people, we kind of closed down at the beginning of the pandemic, and we now have an office again, Um, but I don't go in every day. And, you know, we've come to the conclusion that the beauty of living in Toronto is the city and being able to all get together in spaces. So we're actually trying to figure out how to get into our office more regularly. Yeah, it seems like that's the trend now. Maybe a, a hybrid mix will be where we end up. Yeah. And if I may ask, what part of Toronto are you in? I live right over top of the Brickworks, uh, Moore Park, Rosedale area. Excellent. And have you been there for the long time? or? Uh... Uh, I've lived all over the city. Um, I was born in Toronto and then grew up in Guelph and then came back to school at U of T. And then I've kind of hopscotched through a, a divorce or two and various homes. But uh, I've been here for about a decade now. Excellent. And what a great area. You get your yeah. outside, but you're you're still in the city. But I guess when you look out your window, you got a lot of uh, foliage too. Oh, it's amazing. It's the, the ravines. Are, are, there's a 26 kilometer loop I can do from the brickworks up around back around, like all through the city with my dog. And it, it's what makes Toronto so amazing. Fabulous. Well, I want to f- kind of set the table, go back and get your story. And you, you've uh, mentioned a little there, born in Toronto and then out to Guelph. Uh, University of Toronto is that accurate? Why don't you take us back? Yeah, yeah. No, I grew up in um, grew up in Guelph and uh, came to University of Toronto. I still like. I don't think I've ever felt like a fully a Torontonian. I still kind of think I'm, I grew up in Guelph. Guelph, when I grew up, still felt pretty far away. I mean, it's now I go back and it feels like a commuter suburb, but it was it's its own place and had a great art scene. It had. Um, you know, the university and uh, a lot of really interesting people were kind of coming through Guelph. I mean, people uh, uh, like uh, Tim Long, who's a showrunner for The Simpsons. Uh, Nev Campbell was there. My best friend, who you should actually have on the show at some point, uh, since grade three, is uh, one of the major conceptual artists in the country now, uh, Ante Liu, uh, who did the, the big sculpture in front of the Park Plaza. And anyway, he's, it was just a really, Guelph was a great place to grow up, but Toronto's been my home since I was 18. And uh, for university, what did you take there? And what, what do you remember about that experience being at U of T? Yeah, I, you know, I think I kind of had the experience that uh, U of T is a great institution, a lot of opportunities to do lots of things, but it, it was a bit overwhelming for me, to be honest. It was you know, 50,000 students uh, and living away from home for the first time. I tried a lot of things. I did a five-year undergraduate. Yes. Um, <laughs> I did... I did drama. Uh, I was in the drama program for a year. I history, philosophy, English. You know, I think it was, it actually left me a little bit, by the end of my undergraduate experience, a little bit overwhelmed. It's like the 500 kinds of catch up. You don't 
in the, in the supermarket, you can't buy one. And I felt a little bit like that at the end because there were so many amazing people. I mean, when I was, when I started at University of Toronto, Northrop Fry was still teaching the Shakespeare course. Hmm. And Marshall McLuhan was not long passed away. You know, they were these sort of these titans of a certain kind of Canadian intellectual life that were either present or sort of very like present literally or, or metaphorically. Uh, so yeah, I, I, it was a, it was a really great experience, but it also, I had wanted to work in film and television and as interested as I was in the world of books and ideas, I wasn't going to ever sit in a library, uh, doing yeah. that for the rest of my life. I have friends that have done it and I, you know, huge respect for them, what they do for the culture, but I really wanted to work in uh, production and, uh, Toronto was hard. I growing up in Guelph. I didn't know anybody who worked got paid to, to make media. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it was a, the, figuring out how to make that transition at the time. There weren't a lot of options from the university of Toronto to sort of how you get a job working in media. Yep. Um, so it was, it was hard to figure it out unless you knew someone it was, and it was pre-internet. So you couldn't look people up and send them yeah. emails. So I just started making phone calls. And you eventually made your way to CBC. I did along the way. I actually, but my, when I was still an undergrad, I read a story about a Canadian who had been um, killed with his in front of his mistress in Brussels. It was on page 16 of the Globe and Mail. The story was he'd been killed because he was designing a giant space cannon for Gerald uh, for Saddam Hussein. His name was Gerald Bull, uh, also a U of T graduate, um, who believed that the best way to launch stuff into space was through cannons, not through rockets. I pitched that story to a Toronto production company and it ended up launching my career in television, which after about a year and a half, including being in Iraq right after the first Gulf War ended and almost dying there, uh, being there filming for like six months off and on, that got me my job at CBC. Wow. Not many people start their career with a uh, pitching a story about space cannons. Yeah. <laughs> now you moved over to working on uh, CBC's, as I noted, their flagship news program, The National. How did yeah. you get involved and what was that experience like? I had been given advice that the best way to get a job was to have lots of ideas. So don't come in saying, I like, I want a job. Come in and say, I, I have things I can offer you in the in job interviews. And I, I always think that's the, if you, if you're able to do that, it's the best way to go into a job interview in, in media in particular, because people are always looking for new ideas. So I got hired. Um, I worked briefly at midday when uh, Valerie Pringle and Ralph Ben Murgy were hosting it. And, and there was a time when midday was like one of the biggest shows uh, in Canada and from there I went to work at Venture for a year or two when Robert Scully was hosting it. Again, this was like a primetime business news program that I think laid the seeds for me for Dragon's Den because I, the producers around it considered themselves hotshots, and they were. They did really great stories about business, and it opened my eyes to how exciting business stories were. Yeah. And then I got a job at The National, and um, again, The National at the time, it still is a hugely important show, but there was a time when the National and the Journal were the premier hours in the country. Everyone sat down to watch those uh, those shows. And I, I remember like the first time I came in and there was a meal cart that would come around if you waited until like six o'clock and they would come by with, and I was like just out of university. I was like, wow, like I, someone will bring, <laughs> my work is so important that someone's going to bring me food to my desk. And, you know, we had millions of people a night and it was, uh, but it was very much the mandate of the National and the Journal and then it changed to a show called Primetime News and then went back to just the National. But during my time there was really to be one of the best news and current affairs shows in the world. And the people who worked there were just an incredible cast of, um, of journalists and uh, filmmakers. And that was just a, 
for me a great experience because as a young person who was ambitious, I was able to pitch stories and I pitched a lot of stories uh, that got me um, eventually get to go out in the field and to do things. I, I one of my senior producer for Dragon's Den is a friend of mine, Lisa Gabriel, and we met at the Oklahoma City bombing, which I think was 96, if I'm going to get that right. And we were both the people who were sent down to cover. If you remember that story, it was an awful case of domestic terrorism in the U.S. where someone backed a fertilizer truck full of explosives into a daycare at a federal government building. And it very much felt, in retrospect, like that sort of that change of 9-11 type stuff that was going to start happening in the U.S. And Yeah, so I spent a week down there, and it was really transformational because it was the power of, at that time, sort of, it was like there were hundreds of satellite trucks, and you were, you were doing news, and the power of national attention on a story and the weight that you have as a storyteller to get it right mm-hmm. was really influential to me. And, yeah, I mean, the national, you know, the experience of traveling around the country, the, the beauty of working for CBC is um, in television is if you stay long enough, you'll go everywhere in the country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's you see why people in the federal government become such strong nationalists, because you get to see the country. I mean, yeah. you're in PEI, you're in Newfoundland, you're in the far north, you're in BC, you're in Saskatchewan. And you just, the national project becomes much clearer when you're telling the story day by day. Sure. And you see the exciting, the exciting possibilities of the country. Well, news is live and it's dynamic. And I can only imagine how stressful this must be for you versus pre-taped. Did you kind of vibe off that energy or did you find it extremely stressful every day to be dealing with live news? You know, there's a saying about calligraphy that it's like it's a, you know, it's a three second stroke, but it takes 20 years of experience to get that stroke right. I think the same thing with live television. I, I mean, I think for a lot of us, the you know, elections were a great proving ground at CBC and I think CBC still does the best election coverage. They have such depth of experience in the control room. But nine eleven was a really big one for us doing live and I, I can remember, you know, it was Peter Mansbridge was on live. So I was I was actually just I wasn't even in the control room for this, this that that part of the coverage. And people were on and they were speculating wildly. And we no one knew the, the the towers had fallen down. I remember there was one guy on and they were um accuse that basically said there were, were 50,000 people for sure had died. We were all just shocked. We just couldn't believe what was happening. Like it just like, it had been a normal day at the office and it was the fall. People were gearing up for other things. So the newsroom was doing what the newsroom was doing. And Peter was so great. He just like consistently throughout those hours of live television, like his depth of experience was to be able to say, no, we don't know that. We absolutely do not know that. You know, we need to, you know, that's speculation. And it was the, it was very, very important, you know, to, again, different times 20 years later there's so many other sources there was no twitter at the point there was no internet television it still is the place you go for these huge live events but at that point it was the only source so it's so critical to get it right i ended up doing um, a show with evan solomon for a number of years called cbc news sunday which was uh, live two hours in the morning and that stuff i just loved i mean i had i said i'd, I'd done some theater in my life and that experience it's hard to get away from people who do live television the, the feeling at the end of a really good show, like when you time down and you 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 cut you you cut away finally, and it, you just feel like you've accomplished something amazing, and you shared something live with the audience, which is very akin to theater. I, I do miss it. I mean, I haven't done live for a long, long time. I did some work with Gord Downey. We did some live shows of Secret Path. We do do some live to tape recordings uh, of some of our shows now, but it's nothing quite like having a nation expecting you to 
give them the truth of what's happening and something they really care about and just saying that in a in a live way that has some kind of meaning and context yeah well certainly the uh i guess the line between live and taped and reality came to fruition with your experience with dragon's den yeah. you uh did uh work on the concept and launched it for CBC in 2006. You cast the original ensemble for this show. Yeah. I want to ask, though, I was a huge fan of Robert Scully, The Venture Days. Is there yeah. a connection and lineage between Robert Scully's venture and Dragon's Den in your mind? Well, sure. I mean, it was actually in terms of behind the scenes. CBC was going through one of its periodic self-examinations. What do we do as a network? Or, you know, audiences were dropping. And after promising forever that they would never dabble in the dark world of reality television. Some new executives came in and they said, we're going to do some reality television. What do we have available? And someone had bought the rights to this format from Japan. And at the time, Diane Buckner, who was the host of Venture for a long time as a friend of mine, I used to be her researcher, had came to me and said, like, we should try to pitch this um, as a show to do. And this was like, I think this was like May. And we had to be on the air with the show in September. And because there was nothing else on the shelf, Diane and I and um, a couple of uh, Tracy Ty, who is still the executive producer of Dragon's Dead now, 20 years later, uh, who I'd also been a researcher for, sort of banded together, got a few people. And it was, we had, because Tracy and Diane and I had done so, like, I really enjoyed telling these exciting business stories adventure. We, and we'd had big audiences. Venture at the time in the 90s was one of the top rated shows on Canadian television. So I think a lot of people at CBC News, because we were all working at CBC News at the time, didn't really think there was a, an opportunity for this to be a, a hit. And I think Diana and Tracy and I kind of, you know, you know, Venture really worked. This could be an updated version of Venture, to be honest. And I think it really helped with the casting because, you know, we saw in the end over 100 prospective dragons. And looking back on it, that was the only reason the show worked. I mean, ultimately relies on that cast. And because we had an understanding of what a really great business creator looks and sounds like. The theory was that Canadians weren't that interesting. Hmm. There's always an argument with Canadian television journalists that, oh, it's easy to be an American TV journalist because Americans give great clips. They always got opinions. Good sound and bites. Like, there, there are a lot of people, and in fact, like, uh, I don't know if I can swear on the show, but when I was doing the initial cast, I had some good people, but we didn't really have the Simon Cowell, which for younger people was like the guy, the kind of the... The, the truth-telling jerk on American Idol, which was the big first really big North American reality show. And um, Evan Solomon, uh, who I would talk to him on the phone, he goes, you know, you, you need a rich a-hole. And I had dinner last night with a guy who's a really great rich a-hole. Have you ever heard of a guy named Kevin O'Leary? And I had not heard of him. He had not been on television. <laughs> I called him up. And for the first one, I was like, okay, yeah, he can anchor this. He can do really well. And, you know, Robert Herjavec, I saw a picture of him in the Globe real estate section uh, one day, and he was like in one of the largest houses in Toronto he just bought on the bridal path. But he's happy to show off his house on the bridal path. Maybe he's also kind of like happy to. He's not going to. When I, for instance, when I called Galen Weston to ask him to be on, it was like, oh, we're not going to be part of this. Like, this mm. is vulgar. There was a feeling of the from the establishment business that Dragon's Den would be vulgar. And again, from Venture Days, I knew like the best stories were that we used to call them Adventure, the Johnny's Got a Problem entrepreneur stories. So basically someone, an entrepreneur is about to run out of money uh, unless he can make a big sale or get a big loan or a big investor. 
and we do a, a documentary follow for whatever that time period was, two or three weeks. And, you know, those are the people ultimately who build great new businesses. Yeah. I mean, the, the genius I realized afterwards about how things had worked out, and the only for this retrospect is that all of the dragons were people who had made their own money. So they were quite happy to talk to the people coming in to pitch because they were part of that world. Yeah. And I think if I, there was a point where I was going to put more establishment, you know, uh, big business people on, and it would have been a disaster because there would have been a kind of, um, you know, uh, with a nice way of saying it is, but uh, maybe call it noblesse oblige. Yeah. Like there was like, there was a moment when Kevin, it was like a season two or season three, when this woman who was pitching this, semi-ridiculous idea it was kind of a low-budget Cirque du Soleil and she started crying and he looked at her and said your tears add no value it's <laughs> <laughs> like there were so many moments that you did like that but ultimately and you know everyone has their own take on like you know Michelle Romano who's a friend who's one of the current uh, dragons I mean you know she became a dragon because she started watching dragon stuff yeah and she was a queen and said oh, I'd like to start a business <laughs> and she started a fish farm for god's sake um but this idea that in Canada there was a Canadian dream of being able to build up a business on your, with your own chutzpah. It was, I think, what we saw with, with venture, and certainly was we were able to kind of bring to life with dragon stuff. Well, you explained why the dragons, certain ones, would be better because they had made their own money. But Stuart, how do you explain why the audience? Why did everyone love Dragons Den? Not just quote business people. Well, you know, I think in the end, you know, I don't know if you know Rick Rubin, the famous record producer, sure. but. He's got a line that, you know, there are ideas that are out there floating in the the world that the universe wants to get out. And ultimately, it's like you are going to be the channel for that moment. But if you don't do it, someone else will do it. And I think in when we launched that show, there was a rise in the idea that, of, you know, technology was making it possible, the breakdown of certain kinds of modes of employment, that you could become your own brand and you could build your own business. Um, I mean, I built my own company up with no capital because I realized I could just, you know, uh, the power of a laptop and internet connection to yeah. make connections around the world. So I think it, it seized on that moment and it gave people agency and dignity, you know, and I think people started to realize because of the tech boom too, that there were people who were making money in their garages with ideas. Yeah. And there've been lots of examples for Canadian history. I mean, Trivial Pursuit being a really good example. I, some of the people who got rich off Trivial Pursuit were people in the media who just wrote a thousand dollar check to these guys who had this idea for this game. Sometimes in Canada, like I love this country and I love some of the, like, the balance we have between the sort of a public spiritedness and individualism. But I think ultimately what Dragon's Den was saying is it's okay to be an individual. Yeah. You know, like, and that you can be a little bit selfish really about money. And I think there was an, ex like there was the Globe and Mail hated it. They wrote, three different articles over two weeks about what a piece of trash it was. And it, and it, at one point they said, everyone involved with the show should just be embarrassed. It was just like, well, why is like a certain kind of Toronto personality really dislike this? And I think it really was because it was, you know, people who don't have maybe the, the sort of polish to like be the Jeffrey Simpsons of the world or the sort of the global mail reference point, but who were going to make money. And like, you know, Kevin and Robert and, you know, Arlene, and Jim, I mean, Jim was a, you know, RCMP officer and yeah. is still, you know, like these were not the normal Canadian, like senatorial candidates. Yeah. But they are, you know, it, for most people, it's that sort of, I would 
much rather be. <laughs> so I was at Robert's 60th birthday party in Los Angeles uh, a few months ago. And, you know, Shark Tank has now been such a huge hit and all that resonance. And it's funny in the end that that show, which Canada proved that sort of there was um, a way of being kind of selling the entrepreneurial dream uh, to Americans, ultimately, because it's Robert and Kevin are the anchors of that show. I mean, they've got great people like Mark Cuban on there, but Robert and Kevin were the ones who drove that show for the first few seasons. And are I've been walking down the street with Kevin in New York and, you know, guys working on construction sites. Hey, Mr. Wonderful, <laughs> you know, and it's like, that's powerful to give people a sense that they too can have a, 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 a big dream. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 100 additional episodes available anytime. We got Christopher Stieg, Hal Johnson, David Cinnamon, Alan Frew, and Chuck Swirsky. So many great behind-the-scenes stories directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365, wherever you get your podcasts. Well, let's talk start more about this because uh, Dragon's Den on CBC made Kevin O'Leary and Robert Hershevik stars. Shark's Tank on ABC made them superstars. How did both yeah. those guys transition to Shark's Tank? And what was your involvement in getting Shark's Tank launched? Well, I will say this. I mean, that when Mark Burnett sold the show to ABC, he just showed our version of it. Mm. There was a British version of it, which was, you know, very British. I mean, just didn't, at that time, American TV executives, they heard a British accent, were not that keen on shows. It didn't really work. And there was, you know, there's some things about Britain that British culture in the show that didn't work. And our show, you know, in a bit of an homage to the British version, had the Oasis song, Put Your Money Where Your Mouth Is, which was also a way of signaling to the audience, this is not your typical CBC show. And so, but he showed them our version of the show, which had been, had grown into a really big hit in Canada. Um, but then when the producers called me and said, we're going to be adapting this, but we're going to, of course, get our own people. You don't want to, like, you know, look, we, this is America. We're going to get yeah. the best people ever. We don't need Canadians to sure. drive this. You know, in the end, uh, Tom Huffman, who's a friend, who's the he's now uh, the head of uh, Unscripted at Lionsgate, but was the development producer at Mark Burnett. I really pushed for Kevin. I mean, and Robert, but Kevin, I said, like, if you don't have Kevin, like, you're insane. Because it's a game. Robert and Kevin have been playing this show for years. They knew how it worked. So ultimately, my great gift was making sure that Kevin and Robert got on the cast. Yeah. Uh, at the time, I didn't want to move to Los Angeles. Um, the problem with moving to L.A. when you're married with kids is that your your partner can't work. Your kids have to go to school in Los Angeles and do active shooter drills. Um, and also, don't know if the show's going to last. I mean, that's the other problem, right? It's like we, the initial pickup was, I don't know. I think it was, I think Burnett got a pretty big order. It was like 12, but it wasn't a lot. All the things that can wreck television, like for instance, the first tapings, the network execs were in the ears of the sharks, hmm. giving them lines. And I'd never done that with Kevin and Robert. I'd, I'd sort of let it play out in real time. I'd like to sort of the, the idea of creating something, like not even telling them who they were going to see. That was part of our game. So you, you get the initial reaction and there's a lot of pre-cooking that goes on in American reality. And I think ultimately Kevin and Robert were able to kind of pull the earpieces out and just play. Yeah. And, you know, as good as someone like Mark Cuban is, they're not natural performers. Yeah. And the best way to throw someone off their game is to destroy their ability. Like one of the dragons, one of the sharks told me, it's like, you know, look, I got rich and, you know, I basically now buy expensive boats and houses and wine. 
But that's not really my skill set. My skill set is being able to walk into any business anywhere and within 30 seconds telling you how they make money and if they're going to be able to grow. Hmm. And that's and when I heard that, I think it was actually in the early days of Dragon Sounds, like, okay, so that's the way we're going to make this work. We're going to show off your real superpower. And you're gonna, and it, it won't matter if it's a board game or it's a microchip. You're going to be able to take a look at this. And that was, I think, ultimately Shark Tank does, has done extremely well but because they've all learned how to play the game. But the core was allowing those guys to show off their, secret, their superpowers. Yeah. And what were your interactions, Stuart, with Mark Burnett? Uh, what, how would you describe him? And, and uh, he gets obviously a lot of credit for kind of bringing reality television to the prominence. Yeah, I I had almost zero interaction with him personally. I have lots of people with his team. Uh, years later, I actually did a show with Mark Burnett Productions that um, we piloted for CTV and ended up becoming um, a show with Steve Harvey called Thunderdome, which did about 20 episodes on ABC. And again, on those, he was on conference calls, but on mute. So I was like, he was a bit for me like the Wizard of Oz. I knew the team really well. Um, you know, it's funny. One of the guys who worked for Mark, who, who shall remain nameless, told me that, you know, Burnett came in at one point and, and told him that um, he had um, this guy named Donald Trump. He wanted to do a show for him. He had this idea. It'd be like the worst job interview ever. Design, go over home over the weekend, design a show. And literally that guy went home on the weekend, wrote the entire arc of The Apprentice, including all the challenges that are still used to this day. If you watch The Apprentice, like there's the lemonade stands, things you have to do. And, you know, it's funny in creative enterprises, it's like, well, who who's responsible for that? For, the, for that? Is it Trump? Is it the guy who wrote the format? Or is it Burnett saying, worst job interview ever? Like, I think that ultimately, again, creature of space and time, it's, you know, there haven't been a lot of new formats in the reality space that come out. It's interesting that the ones that are still going in Hollywood are The Voice, which Burnett execs, yep. Survivor, which Burnett execs, and Shark Tank which we're not execs. And I think you, you, you don't screw around with that kind of success. Whatever those intuitive powers are that someone or he can bring to the table with the kind of right people around the room and seizing the right time, it's a huge, huge respect. He's got the track record. And talk about blurring yeah. the lines between uh, reality and, uh, and the real world. Donald Trump, what an example of that. I think, Stuart, the number one question you must get about Dragon's Den do the deals on TV that get done actually get done in real life? Well, you know, it's interesting. So when we first started doing the show, I, coming from my journalistic background, I wasn't, I mean, we had a guy who was a consultant from Sony on the format that came up and he was just like, look, this is just a gong show. That's all it is. Like people are coming up and they're doing their little tricks and they go away. I said, well, I kind of feel like it for it to matter. It has to, these, this has to be a real business. Like there has to be real stakes. Otherwise, people will quickly figure out it's a joke. And I guess it's kind of my journalistic, like, this is the first rally show I'd ever done. And I was like, I just feel like it has to be real. So I actually, it's, we insisted everyone who auditioned had to show they had at least a quarter million dollars of investable capital had to send us the bank statement. But they had it ready to go. Between season one and two, one of the dragons, who I will not name, wanted to quit the show because he said, well, I don't see why I should go through with, this, with these deals. And I said, well, if they've met the qualifications and you're just not doing it because you don't want to do the deal, then that kind of undermines your ability to be a dragon. And one of the other dragons sat there, we basically fired this one dragon who then did end up coming back and closing their deals because the season, the show got renewed, but they weren't going to renew. 
on the basis. The truth is, like, you know, what a lot of the drag get to say to me is like, deals don't close for all sorts of good reasons. And there's, yeah. there's, we do TV due diligence. And I, I, I'm sure they're much better than they are. Like at the time, I did the auditions by traveling around the country and sitting in like venture capital or university offices. And like, I put something in a local paper, like producer auditioning businesses. And, you know, I didn't know any of business. And I was like, I don't know, is that plausible or not? And to be fair, in the first couple of seasons, there were some pretty random things. We never checked anything accurate. Like someone says they have a million dollars in sales. Do they really have a million dollars in sales? What has happened though over is lots of deals have closed. And they close in the end because people have figured out the power of saying a deal on Dragon's Den and or, or on Shark Tank in the U.S. And you know there are hundreds of millions of dollars of successful companies now off of both in Canada, more so in the U.S. because of the size of the market. I mean, at one point, Kevin was telling me he was getting like a, a royalty check of like thirty or forty thousand dollars a month from one of his investments. It was a don't want to say exactly get it wrong but it was not exactly the kind of thing you would think would be like a big money spinner but it was a consumer facing product and they could say on shark tank hmm. and i will say this that all of the dragons and sharks once they when they do their due diligence a lot of them have full-time folks now who just do the due diligence on their deals uh brett wilson when he was doing dragon's den had a like a bat like a bat cave in his office in Calgary, and you would go in like press a library like wall, and it would like go back, and then there would be this whole room filled with all the products he'd invested in. And Brett actually upped the game. I will say this for all the because he wanted to close. Yeah, he wanted to do the deals, and he was successful. Yeah, and I think a lot of guys, oh, you know, this is there's a lot of value here. But ultimately, a lot of people realize that getting on the show and just making a pitch and getting a deal gave them a, a sort of a perimeter, it's a good business. But then the entrepreneurs wouldn't always want to close because they yeah. say, well, I could get better terms somewhere else. Yeah. But in the end, like, I don't know what the current figure is, but a few years ago, I did some calculation and the actual economic activity generated by Shark Tank and Dragon's Den is over a billion dollars now. It's amazing. And, you know, it's... It's, it's 20 years. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's just like, you know, it's it's been such a... You know, and I, I was thinking, it's funny how these things work. I mean, if I'd gone back and pitched the government of Canada back in whenever, 2006 or whatever, we're going to do a, a show to educate Canadians about the, the ways of uh, venture capital and startup businesses. And we're also going to invest something on the order of 5 to $10 million a year in startups across the country. What would the government pay for that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's nice that it's had this effect. And it really has literally given people... Like particularly in Canada, where you know where the show's been on longer than in the states, but you know in the states as well, everyone kind of understands the idea of a deal now. Yeah, they they have they have a, a sense of oh, businesses get valued, you know, and here's how an idea could be worth something. I think that's been really really good for the culture. Well, you can't beat the marketing and promotion value of being on Dragon's Den, and as you say, Stuart, I think it's much more acceptable today to say being an entrepreneur is your profession rather yeah. than. Uh, in our day, so to speak, doctor, lawyer, accountant. Um, this is certainly an acceptable yeah. thing to pursue. 17 seasons now for Dragon's Den. You held yeah. the first four. Are you still a regular viewer of Dragon's Den and Shark Tank? Mm, you know, <laughs> no, I'm not. I think it's. I think a lot of people will say that once they go off shows, they go off shows because it starts to become, it's, it, it's such an intense love affair with shows. 
that um, it does become like a breakup. I mean, although it wasn't, I mean, I allowed it still on very good terms with everyone involved because initially and it's a, a little bit the same for me with the national too. Like I would like send like drunk texts to, to like, 10 o'clock and I, what the hell was the lead there? Blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, I need to get away from that. And, you know, I would have done things a little bit differently. I, you know, I think it's funny because it's been on the air so long. A number of episodes that we did in the first few seasons are no longer politically acceptable. Mm-hmm. We did have a rather large number of underwear models being you know pitching stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> you know for a family show that have sort of been taken away and a lot of kind of leering looks from some of these older male dragons which in retrospect kind of feels very aughts and not 2023 i think that there has been you know in general so i mean the culture has kind of shifted i think there was a there was a there was a kind of a goofiness around the seasons that i was on and a kind of a it, just also the way the cbc worked because i'd been in news the uh, and because it all happened so quickly, the way the CBC works is in a unionized environment. From the news side, is the executive producer like me? I'm a was a unionized employee, so I was not allowed to be told technically by manager what to do with the show. Mm. That's all changed. But at the time, this show was put in under that rubric, so they weren't able to give me a lot of notes in the mm. first couple seasons. I remember at one point they'd actually hired a really accomplished production executive to come in and try to give notes on the show. And she said, what is this guy even saying? Kevin O'Leary was saying, I get the joke on this deal. I said, well, he means he understands it. And if you don't understand it, that's okay. Cause it's kind of like David Mamet. It's like, that's who he is. And you want to lean in and she said, well, no, I think we should take that out. Um, and it was like, no, I disagree. And ultimately you now things have changed. And I think I was regarded as a bit of a, like an example of, Although the show was very successful, that they wanted to have more management control over products. Now, I will say this: that they haven't had any really big hits since then. Not again. I think it was just, it was not strictly tied to my brilliance by any means, but there was just it was a cultural moment, and I think we were able to lean into it and make something that wasn't watered down. Um, I'm not saying it's watered down now because the show I think still very much lives on that DNA. Yeah, um, but when I watch it, I, I kind of, look. I, I still, you know, I am immensely proud of all the people who've worked on it and i'm immensely um engaged with the the fact that cbc's kept it on the air it's still the number one rated show in the desirable demographic on the network Mm -hmm. and you know it's not beloved inside the building as you can imagine for all sorts of reasons but i think it's i'm really proud too i mean i do a lot of sort of socially progressive programming that you know, and friends of mine who don't have a lot of time for Dragon's Den and sort of the kind of raw capitalist ethos of the show. But I'm really proud that CBC has kept it on the air and because it, I think a public broadcaster that turns its back on, you know, the, the vast part of the working economy and doesn't celebrate some of that ethos is, you know, has really marginalized itself horribly. And I, I'm, you know, it's, for sure, apart from hockey, the most right-wing show on the network, and I'm glad that it's still there. Well, it's still terrifically popular. Stuart, you've been moving more towards audio content for, let's say, the last six years. Would it be safe to say that your primary focus today is on podcasting? I kind of, I did do, after Dragon's Den, I set up my own company in 08 um, and started creating original shows. Some Some of them did quite well, um, relatively speaking, but nothing was close to Dragon's Den. And I had a kind of moment in 15, I guess, or 2016, where I was 
it was pretty clear that that kind of golden age of, oh, I have an idea for a reality show. We're going to get a lot of money for it and make it and become a global hit was dying out. Um, I'd done a show called Next Great Prime Minister for CBC that I created. And it was had all the former Canadian prime ministers as judges. It was a youth political show. And that was kind of my biggest hit outside of Dragon's Den at CBC. And it, it did really well. We, it, um, Rick Mercer was the host. And then Alex Trebek was the host in the last season. Um, we did it as a format. I, it traveled to um, uh, France and Germany. It was really big in Bulgaria. Uh, it was big <laughs> enough in Bulgaria that like, I got the, the president, the prime minister, and the king to be judges. But, you know, there was, it was reaching an end, that kind of reality world. And I think that, um, you know, I had a moment when I was at uh, one of the big TV markets uh, called Real Screen. And I realized that I didn't really get a, you know, whatever about the a lot of the shows that people were pitching. They kind of, you know, certain kind of reality shows or constructed reality. Just it didn't it really excited me when I started Dragon's Den. But it, it had less and less interest. And I realized that the people kind of my age, at that point I was in my 40s, so, were listening to podcasts and watching um, docu- docu-series on Netflix, which had just sort of done shows like Wild Wild Country and a few other shows. And it was around that time that um, I got involved working with Gord. Um, Gord had um, just got a cancer diagnosis. I'd been very close friends with his brother, Mike, for many, many years, and did a little bit of work with Mike on some stuff that he'd done with the hip over the years, but had not worked. Mike had actually worked, worked with me on Dragon's Den as well. And was also a researcher with me on Venture. First time I met Gord is actually Gord came through a tour of the Venture offices, actually. And I was like, oh, that's a rock star. <laughs> you know, I think that experience working on Secret Path with Gord also said, like, you know, I love television. I love making stuff. I don't have to keep making the same stuff over and over again. And the resonance of that work that we did and how it was able to sort of in a in a different way than Dragon's Den, but also similarly, like re- using the power of television and narrative to reorient the conversation was really powerful. And I just was, you know, it's like I think you're only ever good at stuff you're interested in. And I was, you know, I wasn't getting commissions for big new reality shows. I wasn't that interested in making them. And but podcasts, I was really engaged with, and I had, you know, the good fortune to sort of. You know, I think at the time, about I, I think again, like Dragon's Den, that people weren't taking podcasting seriously. I don't think they still take it that seriously, to be honest. And I got to, you know, we're we're definitely a, a tiny, tiny piece of the overall business, but it's a big part of what people listen to. You know, it's a big part of their media diet. And I mean, you know, you're a podcaster, you get it. I mean, it's it's a really it's been interesting new medium. So I think for me, it's been I've been trying to take some of the tools I had making bigger projects. And that's kind of what we did with Secret Path. I was like, okay, I had some experience doing journalism. I had some experience doing big reality shows. How can we make a splash? How can we help create a, 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 a national movement around what Gord wanted to get across? And that's because that's really what had happened with Dragon's Den. They created a national movement. And with podcasting, it's like working with creators and to make shows that could be internationally or nationally successful. And, you know, we had a really good run during the big podcast boom. But as I said, podcasts are here to stay. People love them. And um, I think the the trick is to figure out how to make, as a business, how to make money from them. It's intriguing for me, and it's allowed us to build a sustainable business. We're actually, my company, Antica, 
uh, has actually been way more successful, relatively speaking, globally doing audio than ever was doing television. Hmm. And that, like, we're one of the top um, podcast studios in the world. And um, we have a, you know, we do about 20 shows a year and we have amazing talent relationships. Uh, we have a, um, we own part of a company in London that does a lot of stuff out of the UK now. Um, we do a lot of, a lot of work in the US um, directly. Uh, so it's been, you know, it's the, the, the dollars just to speak on the business side, my friends in TV are like, so you're doing a budget, like your budget is $50,000 for a show. It's like, no, I think a catering budget on a Netflix documentary for God's sake. But it's like, yeah, but you know, we can then take risks that you can't take in other medium. And we've done a few shows that are, you know, were turned down, would never get funded in television. And ultimately we get to take swings. I, you know, give you an example of that we, Early on, uh, Tanya Talaga, who Gordon and I met um, doing Secret Path, was um, said she had this this book that she was writing about Thunder Bay, and uh, we, Gordon and I actually optioned the book to help her adapt it to something. And she said, you know, I was thinking about maybe, and we said, like, maybe thinking about doing a podcast. She goes, well, if I did one, it'd be a mixture of like indigenous spirituality, a personal biography, and original reporting. I was like, okay, that's never going to sell as a doc. Mm-hmm. But we sold as a podcast to Audible. Uh, it became a show called Seven Truths. Is still their most downloaded Canadian original three years later. Mm. And one of the episodes, she did this original reporting. She had come across this story, which um, was a really unbelievable story. And we got approached by a couple of people in the drama side of television here in Toronto. And um, they said, can we adapt this that story as a drama? And hasn't happened yet on the drama side, but we then we've turned it into a feature documentary that we're in the middle of shooting right now. And we would never have come across it if we hadn't had the funding for Tanya to do the travel through Northern Ontario to find this story. It's that to me is sort of like ultimately creatively you have to come up with new projects and you know Orson Welles's line, the great tragedy of my life is I picked such an expensive canvas to paint upon. I mean mm-hmm. it really does hold. I mean you've got to make stuff. If you're not making stuff, you're not, you're not, you know, writer's right is the, the, the story. Like, you know, uh, filmmakers make films. And ultimately, if as television become very expensive and very conservative, podcasting is this space where you can really create stuff. And like, not everything's going to work, but we're trying the kind of stories and the kind of formats that I think ultimately are going to be the next sort of, you know, I, I hope, you know, um, audience success and cultural success. Well, I think what's interesting about you, Stuart, is you've kind of straddled the creative and the business worlds of media production. I imagine this must be a real source of uh, kind of diversity for you in your daily duties. You don't get bored. You're doing creative. You're doing business. Do you enjoy doing both those worlds? I don't know. It's funny. You know, when I was in high school, I started up um, uh, the high school newspaper. And it was with, um, you know, it's funny. Like, look back at it. Like, um, Linda Hassefratz. This is like my, my public high school in Guelph. Linda Hassenfratz is now the CEO of Linamar. And mm. one of the most powerful business executives was our social columnist. Uh, Ante, who I said earlier, was um, did our layout. We had this, this incredible cast of people. And I was supposed to be the writer, but I ended up becoming the editor and publisher and raising money. We sold it for 25 cents a piece. We raised enough money that I could do offset printing, which was the really fancy thing <laughs> to do for... High school newspaper. State of the art. 
I know my, like, we had a, a school advisor, a guy named Steve Nagy, who was an English teacher. I was like, you know, Stuart, like, you should be doing more writing. Why are you like managing the paper? You should be doing more writing. And, and I was like, well, because it wouldn't happen if I, if I, <laughs> what else would we, like, someone has to pull it all together and get, you know, Linda to write her column and do all these things. And, uh, you know, I think it's been a lot for me like that. I mean, I still do write, I still do direct. I, I'm not, you know, I look at the writers and, directors that we work with you know i'm nothing like that level i could whistle a tune but i'm nothing like the musicians we work with and i think you know ultimately yeah it's it's been good for me i think ultimately because i often get like i think people get promoted into management sometimes just by default i think naturally i probably like was meant to be um managing teams more naturally like sort of than than being the, the best creative in the room so that's worked and i think from a but ultimately as a producer you're driven so much by taste like you, you like i know lots of producers who are way better at raising money than i am but are really crap on the creative side so they can they can make a few like a few big deals but ultimately if you're making stuff for a career like you like can you choose good projects and when a project has problems which they all do can you lean in and offer some advice or some counsel to help people get to the other side. And I think that's a little bit too, that, you know, if I've had success, it's been because of an ability to sort of help people uncover what they really want to get across uh, on projects. You certainly have had to had a full toolbox, so to speak of skills. And I, I guess it's great when you can work both sides of your brain, as they say, Stuart, as we wrap up today, I want to know what you're working on, your big projects. And of course, you should tell us where we can best follow you and the projects you're working on at Antica. Oh, thanks, Andrew. I did a film with a friend of mine, Melissa Fung, called Captive, about, and if you don't know Melissa's story, she's written a, written about extensively, but she was kidnapped and held by the Taliban when she was working for CBC. And she and I did a film called Captive about the girls who were held captive and escaped from Boko Haram, if you know that horrible story, ongoing story. So the film came out in 2021, but her book is out. It's being launched next month. Um, there's actually an event at uh, event in uh, the Winter Garden Theatre here in Toronto shortly. Um, but her book will be out, and I really would recommend people to read it because, you know, she's such an exceptional person, incredibly strong um, journalist, uh, spiritually strong, and, you know, it's usually it goes the reverse. You write the book and then make the documentary. It's funny that she made the doc and now doing the book, but I would really recommend that book. It's called Be- Between Good and Evil. We have a couple of true crime podcasts out from Antica and our partner Telltale in London that um, I really highly recommend if you haven't heard them. One is um, Love Janessa about one of the world's most lucrative romance scams. Uh, and the other is the um, story of the Sherman murders, yes. uh, which has been, you know, number one, two or three in on the Apple charts for two months in Canada. And I'm really pleased because we initially started pitching it around. Everyone said there was nothing else to say. And I was like, well, I think there's something pretty good here to say, because I think what people were missing out on was the character and texture. People who knew it like when you talk to people who grew up in that sort of North Toronto Jewish community knew like everyone was connected. If you haven't heard the series, we have Saul Rubinek playing uh, Barry Sherman, but what we, he's reading carefully chosen court transcripts 
and other public documents from Barry's life. So it's not like we've, we've dramatized Barry's work, but you get a sense of who Barry is. I think ultimately the mystery of this horrible, tragic death may never be solved, but the characters and the, 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 this is such an important Toronto story at so many different levels. Um, it really speaks to, you know, the city and how, how we deal with wealth and fame and how families fundamentally deal with, uh, with, with money, you know, money and power. So that, those are two of our pods that I'm really pleased with. And, uh, I am working with Mike, uh, and the band on a four part series on the tragically hip that'll be coming out on prime video two years now, no, next year, 20. So yeah, we're already, 20, yeah. So next year will be a big, big series. So, um, yeah, lots of, lots of those kind of things. If, if you're interested at all, find out more about the company we're at our website is anticaproductions.com and i will tell you that if you wonder why the name antica it's because growing up in guelph the most successful business i knew was linda hassan Fratz's father's business lindamar which was named after the girls linda nancy mary so i thought well that's a that's a good name <laughs> so i did that to my kids anthony and erica so ah. antica productions we'll have we have news about our projects we have so many great ongoing shows too i just like I could just give one shout out to a show we do here from Toronto um, called This Being Human with the Aga Khan Museum, which is um, the only global show about Muslim arts and culture around the world. And it has found a really great audience. Uh, TBO came on, supported it. We have so many great guests. As people find the show, our audience has been increasing year over year. I'm so happy for the folks at the Icon museum because they built this beautiful building which is a little bit inaccessible unfortunately but this show has made the larger mission of the museum very accessible to canadians and other people around the world Stuart, you got a lot going on and i want to wish you continued success going forward i want to thank you for your time today great andrew great to meet you and thanks very much for anyone who's still listening thank you for sticking around (laughs) it was our pleasure And to the listeners, on behalf of Stuart Cox, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent. Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter.